This episode of We the People is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything. Health, it's a team sport. CVS Health doesn't just fill prescriptions. They partner with doctors, hospitals, and employers to help patients manage their conditions for better outcomes at lower costs. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. And, in fact, we have a second advertiser for this episode of We the People podcast, which is also brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers engaging video and audio lectures from top professors and experts like me in their fields. The Great Courses created a special limited time offer for We the People listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including the thrilling and insightful Privacy, Property, and Free Speech Law in the Constitution in the 21st Century, which is offered by yours truly, at up to 80% off their original price. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash people. That's thegreatcourses.com slash people. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcast. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we continue our series of blockbuster podcasts that review the week's big decisions at the Supreme Court, as well as preview other cases to be decided this month as part of a veritable constitutional drumbeat leading to the final days of the court's landmark term. On Monday, June 15th, the Supreme Court handed down a fascinating ruling about the right of a U.S. citizen to challenge the denial of a visa to his or her non-citizen spouse. And today, which is Thursday, June 18th, the Supreme Court handed down a flurry of rulings, among the most notable of which are cases about free speech on license plates in Texas and the regulation of church signs in Arizona. We're also expecting a decision very soon in a case about the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment and the government's power to seize delicious raisins in California. Yum. Joining us to analyze these cases are two leading scholars and advocates, and far more importantly, two members of our wonderful Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, whose spectacular roster are joining us uh, each week this June to uh, make sense of what's happening at the Supreme Court. Elizabeth Wydra is the chief counsel of the Constitutional Accountability Center. She frequently participates in Supreme Court litigation and has argued several important cases uh, before the federal courts of appeals. Ilya Soman is professor of law at George Mason University School of Law. His research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and political participation. Thank you so much for joining Elizabeth and Ilya. We're going to start with Kerry versus Din, this extremely interesting uh, case involving not only immigration, but with very interesting implications about what's known as the substantive due process clause. So we have lots to talk about. Elizabeth, can you describe uh, Justice Scalia's uh, uh, opinion in this case? And why was it that he found that there was no substantive due process right to marry? Sure. So thank you, first of all, for having me on this great podcast. And thank you to everyone who's joining us. This is a very exciting time for all of us who care about the Supreme Court and constitutional law. Um, so the Kerry versus Din case is interesting on its own merits, which we're going to talk about, and also because some folks have seen it as kind of giving some signals as to what the court might do in the marriage equality cases that have yet to come down. But in the actual case at issue, uh, we're talking about um, an American citizen, Fawzia Din. She was born in Afghanistan, but became a naturalized citizen in the United States in 2007. She uh, married her now husband, an Afghan native, um, after um, 
uh, around the time that she became a naturalized citizen, and she filed a visa petition in order to have her husband join her in the United States. So the uh, uh, embassy overseas that had the, um, in, in Pakistan, where they were now living, had the um, visa interview with Ms. Din's husband. And during the interview, her husband noted that he worked as a payroll clerk for the Afghan Ministry of Social Welfare during a time when the Taliban government was in control. After that interview, um, a few weeks later, or actually a few months later, uh, Ms. Din's husband was denied his visa from the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. And uh, after they inquired as to why the visa was denied, they said that it was based on a provision of the law that prevents um, a person, a non-citizen, from obtaining a visa for various, quote, terrorist activities. After Ms. Din wanted to get further review of that decision, you know, to try to figure out what terrorist activities exactly her husband was being accused of, how they could rebut perhaps those um, accusations, they were simply told that under the law there isn't any further review that the U.S. government has to provide if it, incite, if it invokes this terrorist activities uh, reason for denying the visa. So Ms. Din went to court and said that... Um, she, was, she had a fundamental liberty interest in living with her spouse, and that was denied by the consular officer's denial of her husband's visa application. And at the very least, she deserved greater review. She deserved a chance to try to rebut the allegations of terrorist activities. And so what the Supreme Court held... Um, and it was a very splintered court. So we have a, what's called a plurality decision that was written by Justice Scalia and joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas. Scalia said that there was no deprivation of a constitutional right because Ms. Din simply did not have a constitutional right to be in the same country or be, more specifically, in the United States with her spouse. And Instead of uh, going with a perhaps more narrow reasoning, which Justice Kennedy and joined by Justice Alito would have, um, the way that they would have resolved the case, which is to say that whether or not Ms. Din had a protected liberty interest in living in the United States with her husband, um, the court did not have to decide that because the notice she received already satisfied the Constitution's requirement of due process. Instead, Justice Scalia went on this very long um, a discussion of and criticism of the Supreme Court's substantive due process doctrine. Um, Justice Scalia taking a line that a lot of conservatives have taken, say that, you know, the, the Supreme Court's finding of substantive rights in the due process clause, rights like privacy, for example, um, that that's inappropriate because this is really about process. It's about procedure. And so looking at um, the asserted right, which Ms. Din locates in her right to marriage and to be with her husband, said that this is not a right that has ever been recognized in U.S. history. And in fact, there has been a long practice of regulating spousal immigration that um, would cut against any such right anyway. So Justice Scalia, for two other justices and himself, reject her claim. 
Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for that wonderfully clear statement of the facts and also description of Justice Scalia's uh, reasoning. Ilya, let's engage this really fascinating debate between Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer about how much substance the Due Process Clause protects. As Elizabeth described it, there's been a longstanding debate about whether or not the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, which says that uh, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, protects substantive liberties, like the right to contract or even the right to privacy that was recognized in Roe v. Wade, that can't be deprived of the state even with due process. And, and Justice Scalia said, if you're going to find any substantive rights, you have to define them as narrowly and carefully as possible, and there's no free-floating right of marriage or even of association. Uh, Justice Breyer disagreed. He said there's a procedural uh, right when your liberty interests are affected to be informed of the reason for the decision, and here uh, the parties were denied proper procedures. Uh, whose reasoning do you find more persuasive, Justice Scalia or Justice Breyer, and why? This is one of the rare cases where I agree almost completely with Justice Breyer. Uh, essentially, as he points out, what's at issue here is not even substantive rights directly, but purely procedural due process rights uh, because of the fact that the government didn't even specifically inform uh, the uh, parties here about what exactly uh, he had done uh, that w w w led to a visa denial, except just by citing the general wording of the statute. In addition, as Breyer points out, the right to live together with your spouse has in fact long been a traditionally protected liberty interest, uh, and even under a relatively narrow definition of the substantive interest protected by the due process clause, this one surely goes through. I would add one last point that I think further undermines Scalia's position that wasn't, I think, quite clearly made in the dissent, and that is Scalia doesn't deny that citizens have a fundamental right uh, under the Due Process Clause to live in the United States, and he doesn't even necessarily deny uh, that you have a protected right to live with your spouse. He just says that in this case, neither of these rights is actually directly denied because she could still potentially live uh, with her spouse outside the U.S., or alternatively, if she's willing to live without her spouse, she can remain in the United States. Uh, and of course, the problem is that if you concede, as I think you must, that uh, these two are both uh, rights protected by the Due Process Clause, part of the liberty it includes, then forcing uh, a citizen, in fact, choose between them necessarily deprives her of one right or the other. Uh, and forcing a person to choose between two protected constitutional rights uh, is, in fact, a violation of the Constitution. Otherwise, the government could trample over almost all of our protected constitutional rights simply by saying that we're not taking away this right directly. We're just saying that you must pick between this protected right and this other one. So uh, this was a case I didn't follow that closely, but when I studied it more closely in preparation for this call, I'm actually much more troubled by uh, at least some of the reasoning uh, offered by Scalia than I was before, though it should be noted that his position doesn't actually command the majority. Uh, there were two, there's a concurring opinion with two justices where uh, they say we don't reach the issue of whether there's a substantive right here. We just simply conclude that even if there was one, uh, the procedural requirements were satisfied. I think that too. Uh, is troubling, but for somewhat different reasons than uh, Scalia's analysis. 
Very interesting. Elizabeth, what are the implications, uh, as you suggested, of Justice Scalia's opinion for his and uh, Chief Justice Roberts's uh, position in the right to marriage case? One reason that Justice Scalia wanted to define the interests narrowly was history. He said that historically spouses of naturalized citizens have been uh, excluded from the country for immigration purposes. There's no longstanding tradition of letting them in ahead. And some have speculated, as you suggested, that this might, the fact that Chief Justice Roberts joined this decision might suggest a reluctance on his part to join a broad opinion recognizing a substantive due process right to marry in the marriage equality cases. Do you agree? And what do you think the implications for those cases are? Well, I do think it's interesting. You know, you, you, uh, Chief Justice Roberts could have joined Justices Kennedy and Alito in uh, reaching the same result, but with a different reasoning. But instead, chose to join Justice Scalia's opinion, which, you know, criticizes the, uh, let's see, he says, grandiloquence of some of the Supreme Court precedents recognizing substantive rights under the Due Process Clause. Um, but, you know, I, I think that while it could signal that Chief Justice Roberts is uh, perhaps unlikely to find a substantive due process right to marriage in the, uh, in the Obergefell case, you know, there are other grounds that the chief could vote in support of marriage equality in those cases. For example, there is an equal protection claim in addition to the substantive due process claim, and that certainly is not implicated by Justice Scalia's opinion in Kerry versus Din. So I, I, I wouldn't count Chief Justice Roberts out entirely. You know, I think we can count Justice Scalia out not so much based on this, but based on his previous writings, um, you know, for example, in the defense of marriage case. But it is certainly a very interesting, um, and some have said that Justice Scalia seemed particularly incensed. Um, so, you know, we're all reading tea leaves because we're, we're desperate for these decisions to come down. And some have said, you know, maybe that's because he's upset that the court is recognizing a fundamental right to marriage equality in the uh, Obergefell case later. So, you know, it's all speculation at this point, but at least it, it, it is very interesting that uh, the chief chose to go with Justice Scalia's opinion, criticizing this uh, broader view of the marriage right instead of going with the narrower ground that Kennedy would have used. Great. Well, one more quick uh, beat uh, uh, on this fascinating case. Speaking of the narrower grounds that Kennedy used, Ilya, uh, you say you were troubled by his reasoning. Why don't you think that Kennedy was correct in saying that Din had already gotten adequate notice that his visa was denied since the Immigration and Nationalization Service told him that it was being denied based on his past terrorist activities working as a payroll clerk for the Afghan Ministry of Social Welfare? Because all they actually told him was to cite the statute under which he was denied without saying, specifying any particular activities or other indications that he had violated the statute. Uh, and as Breyer points out in his dissent, that statute has about 10 or 12 different things that it forbi uh, that is covered by it. Uh, so that doesn't meet the kind of even very minimal specificity that procedural due process usually implies uh, as uh, Breyer puts it, uh, this is very similar to telling a criminal defendant only that he is accused of breaking the law. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just doesn't have any kind of the specificity that you normally have as part of procedural due process, where if the government is infringing on a 
protected liberty interest of yours at the very least. They need to tell you exactly what it is that you did that they think violated the law and in what way. That way you have the opportunity to offer a defense to try to prove that you didn't do it or to try to prove that the particular activity in question isn't really against the law. And that very, very minimal standard was not satisfied here. And I think it was pretty blatantly not satisfied. Great. Well, Elizabeth, finally on this case, I want to ask you about Justice Breyer's dissent, which says the majority confuses the question of whether Din had a substantive due process right to getting a visa and whether she had a procedural right to her husband's getting adequate notice and an opportunity to be heard and present evidence. How how sweeping is this opinion? It's interesting that Justice Breyer and the liberal justices did not claim that there was a substantive due process right to marry. They cited and relied on Goldberg versus Kelly, a 1970 case that I remember a lot because my great criminal procedure professor, Owen Fiss, spent the entire term talking about this case that says that when you're being deprived of important interests like welfare benefits, you need a full hearing and an opportunity to be heard. So my question is, do you agree with Breyer's dissent and do you consider it uh, relatively narrow and procedural or uh, potentially um, more sweeping? Well, I, th- I think Justice Breyer does a very good job of arguing that this is the type of process type of argument, you know, the idea that we get a fair hearing when something important is at stake. And, you know, I, I think that many of us would agree that the right to live with your spouse um, is as important, if not more, than welfare benefits. Um, and so if, you know, you have... Um, uh, certain procedural protections in those cases, then it makes sense that you would have procedural protection um, and the right to, you know, have certain uh, fair procedures given to you before that that type of liberty is taken away. I think he does a good job of, of making that case and saying, you know, this isn't about some grand sweeping substantive right that Justice Scalia tries to make it out to. It's really about fairness and process. And there is a very important right of spouses to live together and raise a family, and that plays a role in what most people consider to be the pursuit of happiness. So I think that, you know, probably this case is not going to be something that will be a grand sweeping opinion that will be used in other contexts because we do have a tradition of um, uh, consular non-reviewability where those sorts of decisions are not... um, generally subject to the same kind of scrutiny that other government decisions are. So I think that might cabin the decision's importance a little bit. And of course, if we're going to talk about the meaning and the contour of the right to marriage, we have a much bigger case coming down the pike this month. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Wydra and Ilya Sonnen, for that uh, very thoughtful debate about a quite interesting case, Curry v. Din. And now it's time for the first of our thrilling mid-roll ads. This episode of We the People is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything. Anyone can get pills into bottles. CVS Health helps get them into mouths. Many Americans who have prescriptions fail to stay on them, so they created industry-leading programs to help people take their medications regularly. CVS is working to save thousands of lives, one pill at a time. Every year, tens of thousands of lives are lost because people don't stay on medication as their doctors prescribed. So CVS Health created industry-leading programs to help people stay on track. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. Okay, now we're going to come to Walker versus Sons of Confederate Veterans, a really interesting case involving license plates. Ilya, can you describe the issue in the case and the court's holding? This is a very tough case uh, in that it involved the question of whether state government restrictions on 
what you can put on your specialty license plate uh, violates the First Amendment or not. Uh, and essentially, what's going on here is that the state of Texas, like a lot of other states, raises money by letting different organizations pay to sponsor specialty license plates of various kinds, promoting all kinds of organizations, the Girl Scouts, the Boy Scouts, various universities, sports teams, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but the board that is in charge of approving these designs, they refuse to allow the Sons of Confederate Veterans to create a specialty license plate, uh, almost certainly because they disagree with the Sons of Confederate Veterans ideological message and find it offensive uh, for various reasons. Uh, and the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the SCV, has sued and said this violates the First Amendment uh, because it clearly discriminates against their speech and treats it less favorably than all kinds of other speech and does so clearly based on the content the viewpoint uh, of the position that the Sons of Confederate Veterans License Plate is advocating. Uh, the court, uh, in a closely divided 5-4 decision, uh, they ruled that this is not a violation of the First Amendment because they say this isn't actually private speech. What goes on a license plate is government speech. They say that it is uh, this is property owned by the government, a license plate is, uh, and in addition, the government retains final control over what goes on the license plate, and they have the right to approve or disapprove. So they say this is different from purely private speech on private property, and they say it's also different uh, even uh, than a situation where you have a kind of limited public forum where there is a government-owned space, but where private speakers are given broad latitude to speak on subjects of their choice. Here, in effect, the court is saying uh, private speakers may be allowed to convey some messages, but the rules are it's only those messages that in some sense are approved of by the state because a license plate uh, is really in some ways like a public monument in a uh, public park where uh, the only messages that are approved are ones uh, that are in, sorry, in some sense consistent with the state's views, or at least not too much opposed to the state's position. Thanks for that great summary of the facts and Justice Breyer's uh, majority opinion. Now, Elizabeth, I want to ask you whether you agree with Justice Breyer's argument that because license plates have traditionally communicated messages from the states, the public is likely to think of them as government speech. Or do you agree with Justice Alito's very interesting dissenting opinion, where he said that license plates can't be government speech because there are over 350 approved plates. They have different messages from golfing to NASCAR, and no one would think of these very personalized messages as communication from the state. Which uh, uh, justice do you find more persuasive, and why? Well, I, I think you know, I, I I I would love to see a poll on this. You know, I don't know if anyone um, uh, has really. Um, you know, asked the American people what they think about specialty license plate. I mean, certainly the states like them because they bring money into uh, state coffers. Um, you know, really, I think that's that's in many cases what motivates them. I don't think it's motivated necessarily by um, a government desire to put forth certain messages on cars as they drive down the highway. Um, and Justice Alito, you know, does a very good job of illustrating his point that, you know, Texas has um, you know, any number of license plates that, um, you know, seem a little far-fetched as a government message, you know, about um, being a real estate agent or um, pride in out-of-state 
universities or sports teams or, you know, is, is, is your favorite NASCAR driver on your license plate really a state message? But Justice Breyer does a good job of saying, you know, like the case in which the court said that um, a state had um, con- final control over which symbolic monuments could be displayed in a public park. Um, here, too, the state has final control over what specialty license plates will be issued. And so that counts as government speech because they're the ones who are ultimately deciding what will be on a government-issued license plate, which has undeniably government-specific information on it, like your license plate number, et cetera. And when you're talking about government speech, then um, the government is free to select the views that it wants to express. So I think that's a pretty strong argument, um, even if, as Justice Alito said, the um, reason here is basically discrimination against a viewpoint that the state considers to be offensive to many of its residents. Uh, Ilya, who do you find more persuasive, and, and what are the limits on the government's ability to discriminate on the basis of speech, according to the majority? Justice Alito seems to be objecting to the very proviso that Texas is allowed to reject speech that they consider offensive, and he says that uh, the principle that speech can't be rejected because it's offensive is a basic tenet of the First uh, Amendment. What's Justice Breyer's response to that, and, and who are you more convinced by yeah, I think it's a very close case, and I think you can make good arguments for both sides. On balance, I'm more persuaded by the dissent uh, for a couple reasons. One is, as Elizabeth suggested, I think there is a big difference between the public perception of monuments and the way these specialty license plates are understood. If you have survey data to the contrary, I'm willing to eat these words, but I think most people recognize that specialty license plates represent messages of the organization that sponsored them, not the state's message, which makes them very different from monuments. And the fact that Texas allows all sorts of messages are pretty obviously contrary to their official positions, like rooting for the University of Oklahoma football team, which is totally contrary to the Texas uh, football team, which I think the state actually wants to promote. That makes it very different from uh, monuments or some other distinctions as well. The other big problem here, I think, is that if it's enough uh, to say that uh, it's not it's government speech, so long as the government retains final approval, uh, then that potentially threatens all kinds of other traditional public fora where up to now free speech rights have applied. For example, we usually say that if there's a park where demonstrations are allowed, that's a public forum and the government cannot re- engage in content-based discrimination. But what if the government creates a park board where the board retains final approval over which messages people can demonstrate in favor of in the park and which ones they can't? And they could say, well, if you're demonstrating in favor of the Oklahoma football team, that's not so offensive, we'll forbid it. But if it's the sons of Confederate veterans and you have a rally uh, to support them, then we do forbid that because we find it offensive. Uh, I think uh, that case would meet the kinds of criteria that Justice Breyer sets up. I don't think that he intended to do so. My guess is that if the Park case came before him, he would try to find some way to distinguish it. Uh, but I think it does come within his logic. Uh, and I think that's what makes this troubling and why ultimately uh, I agree with Alito. It's not that I think the license plates themselves are all that important. I think, frankly, they're kind of silly. And I certainly don't like the sons of Confederate veterans. I think they are offensive. 
But uh, the majority's reasoning strikes me as potentially dangerous in other contexts, which at least are legally and structurally similar, even though people might have different emotional reactions to them. Great. Elizabeth, maybe you could take the last word on this interesting case. It is an unexpected lineup. Justice Breyer is joined in his majority opinion by the liberal justices, Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, but also by Justice Thomas. And it's Justice Alito with Robert Scalia and Kennedy who are in dissent. First, why do you think Justice Kennedy, or rather Justice Thomas, joined Justice Breyer? He's, he's been more deferential in speech cases involving school kids. Uh, maybe you could uh, amplify on your thoughts on that. And then do you agree with Justice Breyer that the government has to be able to select the messages it wants to convey because if it wanted to send out flyers promoting recycling, it couldn't be forced to include flyers from a local trash disposal company. In other words, it doesn't make sense to make an analogy between license plates and other forms of government speech or a license plate special in some ways in your view. Well, it is definitely a group of odd bedfellows in the majority opinion. You know, you don't often see Justice Thomas joining with uh, the more liberal justices um, and, you know, it, it's hard to tell exactly why Justice Thomas has not, you know, been, you know, particularly um, uh, known for his First Amendment jurisprudence. It's not something that he um, has tended to write about um, too strongly for the court. Um, you know, I, I will note it's kind of interesting that Justice Alito writes his strong dissent. He has been um, sometimes a lone voice of dissent on First Amendment cases um, against this generally very pro-free speech court. Um, you know, I, I think Justice Breyer's argument about, you know, the government does need to be able to um, control the message that it puts out. You know, as you said, if there's a flyer promoting recycling, um, you know, they need to be able to do that. I think, again, it gets to the question of do people consider these specialty license plates to be government speech? And I guess the the answer that Justice Breyer might give is that, well, the government considers them to be government speech and um so that is in some ways instructive. And, you know, when you have something like the case where in Pleasant Grove versus Summum, where the public park only had a certain number of uh, monuments that could be displayed, it is something akin to the government not overcrowding its message. And, you know, I suppose you could say that the same thing is true with respect to some of these specialty license plates, although, as Justice Alito points out, it is a little bit difficult given the broad range of uh, of specialty license plates available, but I certainly sympathize with the uh, Texas government in not wanting to have its citizens and visitors to the state see a Texas license plate with the Confederate battle flag going down the highway and having people think that that is an endorsement by the state of Texas. Thanks so much, Elizabeth Wadra and Ilya Sonnen, for that great discussion of Walker versus Sons of Confederate Veterans. Now it's time for our second and final mid-roll ad. Uh, most of you, and we're really grateful for this, are listening to this podcast because you're interested in learning more about the law and the American Constitution and how it affects our lives. And these are, in fact, the topics that I worked with the great courses to create this lecture series called Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law and the Constitution in the 21st Century. I promise, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to have, I think, any other opportunities to plug my own course. But if you like the subject, this is an unusually insightful and incredibly well done treatment. Basically, what we're trying to do is take all of the most 
relevant and interesting subjects involving privacy and technology in the 21st century, from whether drones can track us 24-7 to whether Facebook and Google have too much power to decide free speech and describe the best constitutional arguments on both sides. So it's a great course. You should definitely buy it. And you should also check out the great courses uh, more generally. It's their 25th anniversary. They've got about 500 courses in lots of subjects. And they've just created this limited offer for We the People listeners. If you order from eight of their best-selling courses, including privacy, property, and free speech, then you get 80% off the original price. Uh, and the original price is, is quite uh, substantial, so it's a pretty good deal. But it's a limited time offer, and uh, now I say don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash people. That's thegreatcourses.com slash people. Okay, uh, we've got two more cases, and uh, we turn now to Reed versus Town of Gilbert. Uh, 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 Elizabeth, please tell us about the issues in Reed and summarize the court's unanimous uh, decision. Yeah, so this case is interesting in part because it took a really long time for the court to decide it. The case was argued um, back in, I think, February, um, and given that it was unanimous, it's kind of surprising that it took so long. But um, the issue is um, uh, the town of Gilbert regulated signs that were put up um, by the people of the town, and they had three categories for political signs, ideological signs, and what they called temporary directional signs. And uh, an illustration of what a temporary directional sign is exactly um, the facts of this case. There was a small church um, in the town of Gilbert led by Pastor Clyde Reed that that consists of only about 30 worshipers and um, basically doesn't have a lot of financial resources, so it meets in temporary facilities. And because of that, it often posts temporary signs directing its parishioners to where services will be held that week. So these sorts of signs saying, you know, for uh, today's service, turn left at the second light, and, you know, that's a temporary directional sign under the town of Gilbert's regulation. And so according to the ordinance in the town of Gilbert, the church must limit the size of its signs to six square feet, and they can only be displayed for up to 12 hours before the service. And if you don't, you'll get fined. And that happened to the church several times. But in contrast, for example, political signs are allowed to be up to 32 square feet and can be uh, put up any time before the election. So uh, Pastor Reed claimed that this was a content-based discrimination that violated his uh, uh, First Amendment rights. It was content-based regulation that... uh, targeted speech. And the Supreme Court unanimously agreed and struck down the sign. Um, They did not buy the arguments made by the town that there were um, content-neutral reasons for this law. They cited, for example, aesthetics, um, the concern that these signs could be distracting to drivers. But the majority did a good job of saying, you know, there's no reason necessarily why a political sign would be less distracting or an ideological sign you know, arguably that could be even more distracting than a sign giving directions. And um, if you're concerned about aesthetics, you know, there's not necessarily any reason why signs giving directions are uglier than signs uh, putting forth a political um, or ideological message. So the court subjected the town's ordinance to strict scrutiny, which is very hard to survive um, 
if you're trying to justify a law that restricts speech and is subject to strict scrutiny, it's very difficult to um, get a law past that level of scrutiny, although um, uh, the majority goes out of its way to say that, you know, there could be, if there are better reasons put forth about why a particular sign is going to potentially um, harm public interests like safety or even, um, you know, the public interest in aesthetics, that might survive. Justice Kagan, while she agreed with the result, said, you know, there's really no reason why we needed to say that the standard here is strict scrutiny. She sees that as something new that the majority is doing. And she said, you know, the town of Gilbert's defense of its sort of three different types of treatment of signs, um, the distinction between these directional signs and others, she says it doesn't pass strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny or even the laugh test. So why did the court really need to go this, what she sees as a, um, a very substantial step and say that it's strict scrutiny? Uh, thanks so much for that. Great summary. Ilya, as Elizabeth suggests, Justice Kagan thinks that there will be uh, unexpected consequences to this decision. She says, as years go by, courts will discover that thousands of towns have similar ordinances, many of them entirely reasonable, and this court may soon find itself a veritable supreme board of sign review, striking down signs uh, as innocuous as George Washington slept here. Uh, do you find uh, her uh, reasoning more persuasive or that of the majority, and why? I think I find the majority more persuasive. Some of the things that uh, she points to, Justice Kagan, are actually cases that easily fall within the majority's analysis, such as, for instance, a government sign saying George Washington lived here is different from a private sign the government could potentially, in particular areas, ban all signs other than you know government-created directional signs and the like. Uh, and I think there are actually some places where some roadways where this is the case. Uh, other examples probably are ones where there should be scrutiny precisely to smoke out cases where the government is, in fact, trying to engage in content-based uh, regulation for the purpose of promoting some kinds of content rather than others. More fundamentally, uh, I reject the distinction, which is at the heart of Kagan's analysis, where she essentially says that there is a difference between a content-based regulation, which is trying to drive some particular viewpoint out of the marketplace of ideas versus one which is just sort of adopted for other kinds of reasons. To my mind, when the government is regulating content, they're regulating what it is that you can be talking about in particular settings or putting up signs about. And I think that's a dangerous practice, even if it has benign motivations. After all, censorship of almost any kind often has benign motivations. The advocates of it usually think they have a good public interest justification for what they're doing. So it seems to me that cases where it really is content-based discrimination as opposed to cases where the government is simply exercising government speech or the like, they can reasonably be subject to strict scrutiny. Will there be some additional cases to hash this out? Yeah, maybe. But I think uh, if that turns out to be the case, it might well be a feature rather than a bug, because if it turns out that there are a lot of cases uh, that impinge on content-based regulation, which don't fall into sort of obvious exceptional categories or the majority's uh, uh, opinion, then that suggests that these sorts of restrictions are actually a bigger problem than maybe we thought. So maybe this is as good a time as any to start smoking them out. 
Great. Uh, Elizabeth, Ilya helpfully uh, supports the majority's reasoning that all content-based discrimination is dangerous, because even if it's benignly intended to have uh, be justified by reasons that don't involve the intent to suppress speech, the majority and Ilya think that uh, it often has uh, that dangerous effect. Uh, whom do you with, agree with, the majority or the dissent? And also, please uh, tell us what you think about this unusual lineup. Here, the opinion of the court is delivered by Justice Thomas. He's joined by Roberts, Scalia, Kennedy, Alito, and Justice Sotomayor, a very interesting defection from the liberal camp. Uh, and then there are separate concurrences uh, by Alito, Kennedy, uh, uh, and uh, uh, sorry, uh, separate concurrences by Alito, uh, Breyer, and Kagan. So, um, do you agree with the majority or the or Justice Kagan? And why do you think Justice Sotomayor joined the uh, the majority? Well, it is definitely an odd lineup, and you have you know not just Justice Kagan, but you also have Justice Breyer writing, um, and you know Justice Breyer takes. A sort of similar line to Justice Kagan saying that, you know, while focusing on content discrimination can help identify unconstitutional suppression of expression, you know, maybe it shouldn't always trigger strict scrutiny. You know, it's a little bit unclear when exactly they want that um, strict scrutiny to apply and when they don't, but I think maybe we should all be reassured by Justice Alito's concurrence, um, uh, which was joined by Justice Kennedy and Sotomayor, where he says, look, here are all of these ways that we can still regulate these signs that no one wants to look at um, for very long, but simply make them content neutral. So, um, you know, I think what got the town into trouble with all of the justices is that there just really wasn't a good reason to distinguish between political, ideological, and directional. You know, the, the majority uses this great example of, you know, uh, John Locke. And so you could have a really large sign saying, um, I agree with the principles of John Locke. You could also have a very large sign saying, um, support these candidates who agree with John Locke. But if you wanted to put up a sign saying, you know, turn right and then left and park in the parking lot on the, you know, straight ahead behind the drugstore to join the reading group of John Locke, that would somehow be subject to greater scrutiny. But Justice Alito says, you know, look, if we just treat all those signs the same, you could still get regulations passed by towns that deal with eyesores, um, that distinguish between lighted or unlighted signs, um, placement of signs, and um, total number of signs, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, for those folks who hate having all those campaign signs all around their town, don't worry. I think we might still be okay here. Wonderful. Thanks for that great analysis. I think all listeners of We the People podcast would join a book club discussing John Locke's two treatises of government. And it's exactly. Great. And, and, and we'd have a great discussion. Okay. We have one final case for today. It hasn't yet been decided, but because Ilya has filed a brief in the case, and because it's interesting, we thought we'd end with it. It's a case called Horn versus Department of Agriculture. It involves uh, something called the Raisin Marketing Order, adopted by the Department of Agriculture in 1949, uh, but it was based on a marketing agreement adopted during the Great Depression, basically to stabilize raisin prices. So, Ilya, tell us a little more about the act that's at issue here and why you have filed a brief arguing that uh, it is an unconstitutional takings under the Fifth Amendment. Yeah. 
so this is the rare case that has now been to the Supreme Court twice. Two years ago, it was there on a procedural issue. Uh, now it's there on the substantive issue of whether this is or is not a taking. And as you mentioned, under a 1937 law, uh, the government, with the uh, cooperation of various raisin producers, uh, has created this marketing uh, system where if the producers produce more than a certain amount of raisins in a given year, essentially the government will take possession of some fraction of them and dispose of them in such a way that they will not be sold on the U.S. market. The purpose of this, quite frankly, is to create a cartel system to keep up the price of raisins, thereby benefiting producers. If private producers got together on their own to do this, it would be a clear violation of the antitrust laws, and the Justice Department would probably bust them for it. But because this is the government pursuant to this 1937 law, it's treated differently. And in this case, uh, one set of uh, producers, the horns, uh, what they have said is that when you're taking these raisins from us, you're not paying us compensation. Uh, therefore, it's a taking. Uh, and that under the Fifth Amendment, if the government takes private property for public use, uh, they must pay just compensation. And here, it seems like a pretty clear example. The government has taken raisins, which pretty obviously are property, and actually it has taken many hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of raisins. So it's not a trivial amount of property. And so it seems like this demands just compensation. However, uh, in the lower court, the government prevailed, and they prevailed uh, primarily based on two kinds of reasons. One is the lower court, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, said that uh, there's a distinction between real property and personal property. I'm sorry, real property and uh, uh, yeah, you're right. real property and personal property. Real property is property and land. Personal property is most other kinds of property, including raisins. And they said that the takings clause does not protect personal property nearly as much as it protects real property. The second it's important distinction that they emphasized here is that uh, here, in some ways, the raisin producers actually benefit uh, from uh, the uh, taking, so to speak, or from a government action because, of course, the whole point of it is to keep up the price of raisins, which benefits the raisin producers, or as Justice Scalia put it in your argument, uh, the government's argument here is that the horns are actually ingrates who should be thanking the government for creating the system rather than uh, contesting it. Uh, finally, asked, well, why did I file an amicus brief, which I filed jointly with a number of other constitutional law and property scholars? It's because of the very troubling implications of the Ninth Circuit's ruling and of the arguments the government is making in this case. Uh, one is this lowered protection for real property, which is not supported by the text of the Fifth Amendment, which just speaks of private property, which includes all private property, or by the history of it. We know historically protecting real property and also personal property was one of the main reasons why the Takings Clause was adopted in the first place. It was adopted in part in reaction to British confiscation of mostly personal property, actually, uh, during the Revolutionary War and before. Uh, and also, the government's second argument is also very troubling, and what they're essentially saying is that if you have a taking where, as a result of which you, the owner, benefit in some way, then it's not a taking anymore, even potentially if the benefit that you get is much smaller uh, than the loss that you suffer. Uh, so by this logic, 
uh, as Justice Alito noted in your oral argument, uh, if, for instance, your cell phone producer and the government says you have to turn over every fifth cell phone, then that turns out not to be a taking because, of course, as a result, there would be fewer cell phones on the market, so cell phone producers would benefit. I do think if you benefit from the government's action, that might legitimately diminish the amount of compensation you should get, but it shouldn't affect the principle uh, that a taking has occurred in the first place. It might only or should only affect how much compensation you're entitled to. Great. Thank you for that great uh, introduction to the case. Elizabeth, we're going to give you the last word on this uh, wonderful discussion. Do you agree with Ilya that uh, his brief is a narrow attempt to repudiate a novel distinction introduced by the lower court between personal and real property? Or is this more broadly an assault on the regulatory state? And if the court strikes down this law, which dates back to the Depression era, might that signal a broader willingness to strike down all sorts of economic regulations uh, and price controls whose constitutionality has long been taken for granted? Well, I, I, I'm sorry to say that I, I don't have a position on this case uh, that I can um, state with you on this podcast other than to say that growing up in California, I distinctly remember these California raisin commercials, and they always inevitably got stuck in my head that heard it through the grapevine song. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like a bit of a, of a you know, Traitor is Californian for not liking the raisin commercial for California raisin growers, but that's where it is. <laughs> okay, well, I'll ask you to sing the Heard It Through the Grapevine song offline, <laughs> but that is an excellent concluding note to this extremely substantive and juicy podcast. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard lots of ads on this podcast, but really, a discussion like this one, which you are wonderfully tuning into every week, just reminds us how important it is in these polarized times to have civil discussions between people who disagree with each other, not about political questions, but about constitutional questions. And the National Constitution Center, here's my plug from the heart, is the only place in America in these polarized times that can bring together people like Elizabeth and Ilya uh, to debate, uh, learn about, and celebrate this great document we all have in common, the U.S. Constitution. So for all those reasons... Please join us next week. We're going to continue our constitutional drumbeat uh, as the Supreme Court term uh, uh, approaches its end. We'll discuss the cases that the court hears then. Uh, and that's all the more reason to join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.